the most frustrating part about shortages is that they are always an emergency. Um, literally, that there just isn't enough. Unfortunately, drug shortages are just part of our daily practice today. And so if not this drug, it'll be the next drug. And all of a sudden, you can't find the stuff. And it's just one of many like that. The relief in that room was partly, hey, this topic is finally on the table. And, and, and you know, the, uh, the big guys are actually taking it seriously. Anesthesiology News presents The Etherist. Episode 1. We have a problem. So it's been particularly um, shocking to me and an eye-opener to find myself in the country that I believed was the country of opportunities, wealth, success, and, and I never imagined that drug shortages were even uh, imaginable. Hi, James Pruden here, Group Editorial Director of McMahon Publishing and Editorial Director of Anesthesiology News. Covering medicine is and has been important to me. The problem of drug shortages is a Gordian knot. The group purchasing organizations, hospital economic factors, bureaucracy, and acts of God all playing their part. We are the wealthiest, most innovative, and research-rich country in the world. Yet still, obstetric anesthesiologists are having to put mom and baby at unnecessary risk, and oncologists are having to rethink treatment for lack of preferred and better tolerated options. So far, you, the providers at all levels of healthcare, have worked overtime to keep patients from harm. But as some classes of drugs go into their second year of shortage and producers consolidate further bottlenecking supply chains, how long can that last? Over the next four episodes of season one of our first podcast ever, through your stories and those of the regulators, producers, experts, and patients, we'll dissect the pharmaceutical supply chain and hopefully help pull the string to untie that Gordian knot. I hope you'll stick around and listen. For 30 years, Massimo has delivered powerful monitoring solutions that have expanded the boundaries and capabilities of non-invasive technologies. As an industry leader in pulse oximetry, Massimo technology is renowned for accuracy, arming clinicians with essential knowledge to support patient safety even in challenging patient conditions. Today, Massimo technology encompasses much more than pulse oximetry. Massimo is now addressing the challenges faced by clinicians through a versatile healthcare automation platform poised to streamline workflows and enhance the practitioner and patient care experience. Discover how healthcare automation powered by Massimo can improve your practice. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. All right, so this topic of drug shortages has been gradually making itself heard in our reporting. So we get FDA shortage announcements via email all the time. Experts we interview have been bringing it up every week. So we hear about it, and, and by we, I mean myself, but also Michael DePoe Wilson, who's our associate managing editor and executive producer of this podcast. Hi, James. But the first time that the topic of drug shortages really came front and center was at the 2018 ASRA meeting, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. It was the World Congress that year. We were wrapping up on the last day when we got an invite to a late-breaking panel discussion. Yeah, it was, uh, it was around the tail end of the ASRA meeting, and I'd been running around the conference for three days by that point. 
And then we got wind of that meeting from the Azure press people, actually, uh, saying that they had put together this sort of a roundtable last minute. Uh, it took me a little while to find it. It was uh, off in a corner where I'm pretty sure they didn't have any other events during the entire meeting. Went inside, I sat down. It was a bunch of tables kind of stacked together. So they made this huge U-shape. And uh, Dr. Ed Mariano was at the front of the room. Put the projector off because we're not doing any of that. Ed is on the board of directors for ASRA, and he's the chief of anesthesiology and perioperative care at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System in California. By the time the meeting was ready to start, the room was full. There were people standing in the back of the room. So I just sat down and pulled out my recorder, hit record, and just kind of sat back and waited for everything to get started. Um, we have some special guests, and we're um, very, very fortunate. Really, I mean, we couldn't be luckier. So we have the uh, Jim Grant, president of the. A this was a late breaking panel. But it did have some important people on it. Talk about the opioid shortage. Well, actually, where I work is the 1,200 beds facility just north of Detroit, and it's just found out that we have no Zofran. So it's like, well, I guess they're not getting nauseous to be on my opioids, but I'm Zofran. That was Jim Grant, who is the immediate past president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, or the ASA, and he chairs Cedar Sinai's anesthesiology department. And we have Dr. Ruth Landau, who's in board of directors of SOAP. I keep on wondering whether if the shortage had been Viagra or something of the sort. People were kind of jumping at the opportunity, like hands would go up, they'd want to talk. Could this get so bad that we are changing so many drugs, drug A and drug B and drug C and drug D, that we could get to a point when we say, you know what? not even about post-operative pain, it's about should we even do these operations. At some point, this can hit the cover of the Boston Globe. <laughs> I guess I would say that the people were excited to be able to talk about their struggles and share ideas with each other. If you think about it, the reason why this is happening is because there's one person producing it. So how can we be proactive? And there's more drugs on the street than in the hospital. <laughs> the relief in that room was partly, hey, this topic is finally on the table, and, and, and you know, the, uh, the big guys are actually taking it seriously. I thought, well, we should just try to have uh, a conversation and just okay. and try to learn from each other, because I, I've noticed that different practices have been variably affected. Yeah, and it was right around that time, one of our most popular stories was about the drug shortages. We were told by experts that most of the drug shortages were going to be over with by the end of that year. That's 2018 we're talking about. But as we moved into 2019 and those shortages weren't going away, we started to realize that there was more to this that we wanted to pursue. That moment kind of helped us sort of crystallize that this needed to be done in a way where we could share those voices in the most direct way we possibly could. And we felt like the closest thing that we could get to putting people in the same room was with a podcast. But we have never produced something like this. So Michael decided to pull together a team of reporters to help us out. We knew that the first person we wanted to talk to was I'm Dr. Ruthie Landau. Landau. I'm the head of obstetric anesthesia at Columbia University Medical Center. I'm the Virginia APGRA professor of anesthesiology, and I'm also the next so president as of 2020. So we sent our two producers, W. Harry Fortuna and Megan Lee Callahan, uptown from our office in Manhattan to the Columbia University Medical Center. And she was kind enough to sit down with us in her completely barren, still under construction office with lots of space. We started off by asking her to retell that story that Michael heard during that panel at ASRA. So it happened on February 10th, 2018. I was actually working in the labor room. We're a very busy labor room. We deliver 5,000 deliveries on our main campus here. 
We also have a satellite hospital with 2,000 deliveries. She's the head of obstetric anesthesiology. You have to imagine that her staff knows when she's in the labor room, so any interruption has got to be critical. But on that day, while she's in there... I received a phone call. from our pharmacist saying we needed to meet. And then what happened? Well, I met with the pharmacist. So she left the labor room and went to meet with the pharmacist in his office somewhere on the other side of campus. Once she gets there, he sits her down and he turns his computer monitor around and starts pointing at the screen at the pharma purchasing system. And he's pointing to an inventory line item to a name she immediately recognizes. Hyperbaric bupivacaine. It's her department's first choice anesthetic for cesarean sections. And so he's showing her this and he says, This is it. We have um, three weeks. And remember, this is a facility that handles 5,000 births annually. And the portion of those that are cesarean? Approximately 35%. Ruthie explained that her next thoughts immediately went to all the women who would come into her hospital over the next three weeks and beyond. All of those women that, for one reason or another, would need a C-section. She thought, Are we going to have to do general anesthesia to all these women where we would typically not do? Just imagine you're going into your delivery day. You have your birth plan, you know what you want for yourself, your child, your partner. And then on the day of, you're told that you can't be awake for your baby's first seconds. And that's just the obvious negative. There are other ones. Besides the psychological aspect for women not being present, the husband is not allowed to be present in the operating room unless the, the woman is awake. So both of them are deprived of you know, seeing their baby be born, hearing the first cry, surely bonding. And for those women who didn't want a cesarean delivery, offering them that contact actually makes it more of an experience rather than a, than a surgical procedure. It's also switching up with the doctor, the nurses, all the staff members are used to doing. It's rapidly shifting protocol. Hyperbaric bupivacaine is essential. There's a reason the first choice anesthetic is picked up for a procedure. Because it provides safe, rapid anesthesia, and that's the drug that we've been using for... Without it, you're basically pulling from the second string. Decades, the one we know best how to utilize. There are risks or contraindications. So not having that as an option was opening a whole new um, clinical conundrum, and three weeks seemed like not much time to come up with a contingency plan. And minor or even major adverse outcomes are real possibilities. From a medical sort of clinical standpoint, the women don't seem to be dying because of the general anesthetic. But there are still major uh, complications such as more bleeding, more nausea, more pain. And for these things to happen on what's supposed to be the happiest time of a mother's life? That's not good. No. <laughs> so the next obvious question for her is, when can we expect to get more? And for me, this is when this issue gets really concerning. We're not told how long the local anesthetic drug shortage would last. No one in the hospital, no one along the supply chain, from the manufacturer to the wholesaler to the distributor to her pharmacist could tell her when she could expect to get this drug again. We were told that maybe there would be a delivery in April, maybe in May, and hopefully in June. That's what we were told. That's an outstanding amount of uncertainty for anyone. How could it be? Um, how was it noticed? Is it really the case? Are you sure you can't find more of these vials for us? 
This was a new situation for each one of us, individually and collectively. You know, we work with a team of residents who are in training. We didn't want to have too many different options and find ourselves in the middle of not being able to make a decision. And this is a decision they shouldn't have to make in the first place. The drug isn't complicated, it's generic. And I think for her, it was particularly confusing because she trained in Europe. I've always heard about shortages and drug shortages, but it's been particularly um, shocking to me and an eye-opener to find myself in the country that I believed was the country of opportunities, wealth, success, and, and I never imagined that drug shortages were even imaginable. Innovation at Maspo never stops. Sedline brain function monitoring and O3 regional oximetry are available together en route, a single patient monitoring and connectivity hub. With Sedline, clinicians gain key insights on the state of the brain under anesthesia through bilateral data acquisition and processing of EEG signals. O3 regional oximetry supports clinicians by monitoring cerebral oxygenation, offering essential information on changes in tissue oxygenation. The ROOT platform brings these two powerful and complementary monitoring technologies together in one display. Discover a more complete picture of the brain. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. The shortage of hyperbaric bupivacaine that challenged Ruthie Landau's department was becoming a national problem from New York to California. For us in our hospital, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges we had was we had established very um, evidence-based and regimented protocols for certain types of surgery. Ed Mariano helped bring more attention to the issue and the providers who were being affected by it when he led that panel discussion. Turn the projector off because we're not doing any of that. But when the spinal bupivacaine shortage hit his department, it wasn't in the delivery room. For our patients who have a uh, knee arthroplasty, our preferred anesthetic technique is spinal anesthesia. It's their first choice anesthetic for TKA procedures at the Palo Alto VA. Without having any uh, any hyperbaric uh, bupivacaine in our hospital, uh, to the point that even our spinal spinal trays that we were receiving from um, our manufacturers and distributors, it would have everything but the anesthetic in them. 70 to 80% of our patients receive spinal anesthesia on any given month. And we've seen um, great results from that, and our patients are very satisfied, our surgeons are very satisfied with this. Um, there's a lot of pressure to try to maintain that same level of care. During the beginning of the shortage, when they were developing their game plan at the VA, he had an idea, an idea to study it. He made sure they started collecting the data on the department's use of anesthetics before and during the shortage. The reason why we thought this would make for an important retrospective cohort study, one, Unfortunately, drug shortages are just part of our daily practice today. And so if not this drug, it'll be the next drug. The second reason why I thought this would be really important is to see, well, how do anesthesiologists adapt? And as I mentioned before, I think for many reasons, I think that um, whether it's self-selection because we get trained this way, um, anesthesiologists are good problem solvers. It's an interesting natural experiment. And it revealed some slightly troubling outcomes. Because the percent use of, an, of any adjuvant, the addition of an opioid, the addition of uh, a vasoconstrictor like epinephrine, or a combination of uh, adjuvants, increased in a statistically significant fashion. So the shortage changed not only the anesthetic drug being used, 
but also the behavior of the anesthesiologist administering that drug. I can't explain exactly why people do that, um, but uh, I speculate that it has to do with a lack of confidence in the alternative anesthetic, a concern about the duration of action, a concern about the predictability um, of that anesthetic you know, compared to what we consider the norm of hyperbaric bupivacaine. In addition, I think what we saw, at least in our in our uh, our shortage group, that use of adjuvants, you know, that change in practice actually did lead you know, to more nausea and vomiting in our patients afterwards, so more side effects um, and, uh, and arguably a lower quality of anesthetic compared to uh, when we have the drug that we normally use. It was something of a domino effect. Their first choice anesthetic goes into shortage. They switch to a secondary anesthetic. Then they see an increase in the use of adjuvants, which leads to an increase in PONV. These shortages are not simply business as usual. Right now, today, we are at about a 250 active shortages that we're monitoring. That was Erin Fox. She's a pharmacist who's the Senior Director of Drug Information at the University of Utah. Erin and her team maintain what's considered to be the most up-to-date and accurate list of ongoing drug shortages. So in 2001, um, we started tracking national drug shortages, and I was the newest staff member at the time when I raised my hand to lead a project on shortages. So no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> right. The second voice you hear is Adam Marcus, former managing editor of Anesthesiology News. He's now the editor of our sister magazine, Gastroenterology and Endoscopy News. He went to Salt Lake City to talk to Aaron. I think the most frustrating part about shortages is that they are always an emergency. So I would love to say that somebody calls you on the phone or sends an alert to the iPhone. Guess what? Furosemide is now going to be in shortage, but that is never the way it happens. My name is Kim Crowley. I am a pharmacist that works inside a nursing facility. I talked with Kim where she works at the Laurel Assisted Living Facility in London, Kentucky. Say your furosemide you order all the time is item number 123. All of a sudden, 123 is not available. And you think, oh, it's just that item number. So you order 456 and then 789. And all of a sudden, you can't get any at all. So, of course, I asked her, what does she do that? Well, first I call the wholesaler. Say, hey, do you guys know what's going on? Occasionally, they will say, well, our shipment is expected. We'll give you a call back. And then other times it's they're just not sending us anything and they're not telling us why. And that's how you find out there's a shortage. How long has it been that way, I asked? Probably five years or more. Remember when we said that Aaron Fox and her team keep the most up-to-date list, most up-to-date database on these shortages? The assumption would be that that responsibility would fall to the FDA. They monitor and regulate drug manufacturing and distribution. We'll get into this more in future episodes, but what you need to know now is that a lot of these shortages are a result of things that happened on the manufacturer's side, glitches in the supply chain, problems at the factory. But one of the most frustrating aspects of all of this not knowing. Even if you see news of an FDA warning letter about a factory that is in bad shape, a company not following the good manufacturing practices, you can read the warning letter, but you can't get a list of, of all the drugs made in that factory. So you can Why? start planning. Proprietary trade secret. That must make you want to pull your hair out because Absolutely. here you have a public health crisis, emergency, yeah. and it's being held up by some sort of commercial exactly. <laughs> interest. And I heard a lot of reasons for this, the best of which, and the one that makes the most sense to me, is to prevent hoarding. 
hospitals realize that a shortage is impending, they're going to hold on to the drugs they need for their patients. And those drugs can then not be distributed to other hospitals, even when they may need it more. But not everyone thinks that's a good enough reason. Exactly. It makes no sense that the list of drugs made in a factory is a secret. That's it's crazy. And what are the manufacturers doing about all this? Some of the manufacturers are pretty sophisticated, you know, and we'll get an Excel spreadsheet that's 600 line items long. And each one of those line items will state that, you know, we have an issue. Here's when we expect the next supply to be. And here's when we expect total resolution to be. But this is Chris Snyder, uh, drug information shortage pharmacist for the Cleveland Clinic Health System. And are they pretty good at meeting those marks? I guess it would depend on your definition of good. When I pressed him a little bit more on it, he gave me a number. Um, probably 50%. So a coin flip. And if this is what the drug shortage specialist of one of the premier health systems in the U.S. can expect, what are the smaller systems getting? Not to mention the fact that many of these systems don't have the resources to hire a full-time person to deal with these shortages. Throughout my career, there have been pockets of shortage. Once again, things change from brand to Kim Crowley. generic availability. You, you have little pockets of shortage. That really is just kind of part of the process. But these shortages are different. There's no rhyme or reason to them, she says. All of a sudden, you can't find promethazine injection. I mean, that's something that's used multiple, multiple times every single day in a hospital. Like here in a nursing facility, we use it every day. And all of a sudden, you can't find the stuff. And it's just one of many like that. And even in this situation where the manufacturer decided to stop making the drug, providers weren't given any notice. They're constantly having to think of solutions on the we fly. We very creative and quite successful. And we're back to Ruthie Landau. It's interesting that there had been a publication, a systematic review of all the studies comparing isobaric and hyperbaric bupivacaine for cesarean deliveries that says that it provides the same anesthesia, um, just not as rapidly. Although none of us had actually used isobaric bupivacaine for cesarean deliveries. What we decided to do was for those who were not urgent. They would use the isobaric bupivacaine. But like we talked about before, there are reasons why they weren't using this drug. Isobaric bupivacaine comes in very large vials. The vials are 30 ml of solutions, of which we need three to do a spinal for a cesarean delivery at most. Actually, between 2.5 to 3 ml. So now they're left with a choice. Waste the medication they can't use, or split up the dose. Pharmacy agreed they would take one vial and split it into 10 syringes of 3 ml of that solution under a hood that maintains sterility brought every day at the same time around 10 a.m. And that's a whole lot of unnecessary work added to everyone's day. We also had to inform the main operating room because we hoarded the hyperbaric uh, bupivacaine. That meant that it wasn't available for uh, orthopedic uh, procedures. So the regional anesthesia folks were agreeing to um, not be using the medication and give it as a priority for our use. But since she still had that three-week supply, and that is the preferred drug for these procedures... We applied a sort of a, a conservation measure. Keep the hyperbaric bupivacaine for those cesarean deliveries that are truly urgent, we would have enough of these vials to last until June. 
And Ed took notice of Ruthie's strategy when faced with the same shortage just a few months later. Actually, uh, we we borrowed the recommendations from the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, um, which uh, Dr. Landau had crafted. which provided at least the suggested alternative. And so um, we offered our anesthesiologists that, yes, we have half percent isobaric bupivacaine. Um, It is preservative free. It's recommended by the obstetric anesthesiologists in their practice where they have great evidence to also support spinal anesthesia for patients having cesarean delivery. And all of that is just from one shortage. But remember, um, right now, today, we are at about a 250 active shortages that we're monitoring. And that's been the number for about the past five years. For many of these drugs, providers are coming up with ingenious alternative treatment plans, and those alternatives aren't leading to major adverse outcomes for their patients. But as we saw with both Ruthie and Ed, the shortages are significantly altering practice standards. But what happens if one of those forced practice changes leads to adverse events? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? In the case of anesthetics, there are usually alternatives that get the job done good enough that the patients may never know a switch was made. And if not, it's often non-life-threatening, like Ed finding more nausea when patients had to use alternatives. But for those drugs without alternatives, adverse outcomes are a real threat to patients. So I went and met with- Dr. Matthew Matasar, I'm an attending physician at Memorial Sun Kettering Cancer Center member of our lymphoma service, and I serve as the medical director for MSK Bergen, our site in northern New Jersey. He did mention one widespread shortage, basically a medicine that you can't get anymore. So there's there's a very old-fashioned but still very good regimen in the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma, a regimen that's called MOP, M-O-P-P, where each of the letters stands for a different medicine, and M stands for mustard. It's actually basically mustard gas, sort of the medicinalized version of it. So that's a very common question is, how do you get mop without mustard? Sounds like condiments, but not so. Um, nobody has nitrogen mustard anymore. That's a, that drug is is no longer available almost anywhere, even in Memorial Sun Kettering, we don't have it. So Luckily, his patients weren't super affected because they have alternatives. We've all come up with sort of a modified version of the mop program. Uh, substituting an available drug that has a lot of the same properties as nitrogen mustard. Sometimes it's kind of hard to quantify how patients are being affected. He told me a story about... A patient who came to my office for a second opinion, he was being taken care of elsewhere, uh, also for Hodgkin lymphoma, not getting MOP, but getting a program called ABVD, again, four-letter, four-drug combination program. But at that time, the drug B, which is a drug called bleomycin, was in shortage in certain parts of the country. And his doctor told him, I'm all out of B. I have no more bleomycin to give you. So I can either just give you sort of the other three, or maybe you can try to find someone that has all four. Um, So he came up, he was living in another state, and he came up and relocated to New York and came to see me. And we did have enough of the drug around that I could just continue the planned program of all four drugs. And that person did finish his treatment because they found a place with the medicine he needed. But also, he was able and willing to move states away to continue. Since then, there's been new research saying it's possible his survival rate would have been similar without it, but the tried-and-true method is the full course. It's hard enough to be an oncologist just in terms of the day-to-day care of our patients and helping them face the challenges. But, you know, I have such uh, tremendous sympathy for physicians who have that additional layer of challenge and care of their patients. 
it makes me really appreciative of the resources that I do. And if that's not enough, while surfing the internet one day, I found this guy. He told me to page him when I get to the lobby, so I just want to make sure I'm in the right place. He's a pediatric okay. oncologist at Sinai, Baltimore, and he's very outspoken on this issue. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, you bet. I'm Yoram. Dr. Yoram Nguru was kind enough to sit down with me in his office. And considering what he does and who he treats, it's easy to understand Yoram's frustration. This is insane. He explained to me that on more than one occasion, he's had to sit down with parents and tell them. I mean, there's few things out there that are worse than having to tell a child or a child's parents. The bad news. That he or she has cancer. This was worse than that. Because cancer in children oftentimes is nobody's fault. It's bad luck if you want. Here you have an otherwise preventable condition. 85% of kids with cancer can be cured, not treated, cured of their disease. But for factors that are beyond our control and not entirely clear to me, we have a curable disease, but I can't do it because of a preventable, a preventable shortage. That was a horrible discussion. And it's a conversation that's becoming much more frequent. Over the past decade, we've seen that the shortages are happening more frequently and lasting longer. Remember, when it comes to cancer, the cure is often worse than the disease. Where chemo largely comes from historically, it's from the observations with nitrogen mustard gas during World War One. Our treatments aren't free, and I don't mean cost. They come at a, at a cost to that child's well-being. And there's a lot of palliative drugs that come with any course of chemotherapy treatment. For me to be able to give you chemotherapy, I need to be able to give you IV solutions. For me to be able to give you chemotherapy, I need to give you anti-nausea medicines. For me to be able to give you chemotherapy, I need to sometimes give you TPN, parenteral nutrition. Oh, the essential electrolytes and minerals in TPN, guess what? I mean, I've, I've unfortunately lived this. And the only warning he gets? Something to the effect of company X is having a manufacturing issue. Mm -hmm. They anticipate that there will be a shortage for the next two months. And remember how good those predictions are? Um... Probably 50%. Not a lot to go on. How is someone supposed to map out treatment plans based on that? And how does that inability to plan effectively impact patient care? My name is Holly. Um, I am the mother of a 17-year-old uh, patient of Sinai Pediatric Hematology Oncology Division here at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Holly was kind enough to share some stories about her son, David. David has undergone treatment since September of 2016 for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And while his chemo drugs have always been available, he's suffered in other more subtle ways on account of these drug shortages. Um, David encountered a period of time where he had lost about 70 pounds of weight. He was um, very thin and frail and had a hard time swallowing the very large antibiotic that, that is pretty much the backup mm -hmm. to pantamidine. Um, and it, it wasn't available. It was kind of referred to in the pediatric oncology clinic as liquid gold because it was in shortage. And there's several times during um, treatment that that is the only option um, when you're given very high doses of methotrexate. A lot of the other antibiotics will interact. Um, and so they provide um, this IV antibiotic to the patients. So those patients took priority over David since there was a shortage. Mm -hmm. They were routed to those because it was 
more of a need. Sure. Um, however, for David, he missed several doses because he had a hard time swallowing which is sulfa or Bactrim, mm-hmm. I would um, coat it in um, Starburst, kind of melt it and, and coat the pill because it's a really powdery, odd-shaped pill. Sure. And, and even then, he had a hard time. You know, that one pill um, kind of started to deter him from the rest of his medications that he needed for treatment. And at one point, he told me he was done with treatment. He wasn't taking any more of his, his pills. Um, he was... He didn't, he didn't want to do it anymore. Thankfully, David hasn't given up. He's living a normal high school boy's life, playing lacrosse, hanging out with friends, and for the time being, getting the treatment that he needs. But his experience and those like him begs the question, why is this happening? Why is this happening? For many of the providers and experts we spoke with, it's starting to feel like a normal part of practicing medicine. On the next episode of The Etherist, we'll examine the supply chain in depth and try to identify the weak links in that chain that are leading to this ongoing and national crisis. We hope you'll stick around and listen. The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, our executive producer, and our producers, W. Harry Fortuna, Megan Lee Callahan. Music was by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. And we had help from Adam Marcus, David Bronstein, Marie Rosenthal, Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Matt White, Martin Barbieri, Quangy Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone. And special thanks to our sponsor, Massimo. I'm James Pruden, the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. Thanks for listening.